on of humankind from the first day God created human beings to this day, God's intention for his people has always been for us to have a profound impact on this world by asserting our influence in this world. Genesis 1, and 28 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. There's nothing passive about that statement, is there? As God's people, we're commanded to actively and intentionally and consistently exercise our influence to bring about change in this world. Jesus said to his followers, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And then he said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5, 13 through 16, which means we promote and advance his fame, his glory in everything that we say and do every day of our lives so that the light of his truth would shine so brightly through us that others would be able to see clearly the way to Jesus Christ. And interestingly, every time we find God's people failing to do that, see it all throughout Scripture, every time God's people fail to do that, it is because they have allowed themselves to be influenced by this world rather than being an influence in this world. And look, when God's people allow themselves to be more influenced by the world than they are actually influencing the world around them, that is when the church becomes ineffective, fruitless. Instead of taking spiritual ground for the kingdom of God through influence and change, we actually give up ground through complicity with the culture around us. According to the Apostle Paul, we become captive to philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Colossians 2.8. Jesus said it's like those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Mark 4.18 and 19. Okay, you can bring about change through influence to the culture around you, or you can be changed by the influence of the culture around you. And that choice, by the way, is yours alone. Right? And so throughout history, we find the church at its best when it is bringing about change by influencing the culture around it for the cause of Christ. And the same is true for the individual Christian as well. Those who have had the greatest impact in this world have done so because of the influence they have been able to exercise, some of them even while under tremendous persecution and pressure, from a world that is often very hostile toward God's people. Because that is how God hardwired us from the beginning. 
You see, we're supposed to be agents of change in this world. And in fact, if you belong to God today, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, whether you realize it or not, you already have that spiritual DNA inside of you. You already have the ability within you to bring about very real change in the hearts and minds of other people in this world through the influence of the Spirit of God who's living inside of you. And listen, God created you for that very purpose, to glorify Him by bringing about change in this world. And yet, it is always interesting to me when you're talking to other Christians about making disciples of Jesus Christ, and invariably, someone will say, well, pastor, that's not really my gifting. That's not really my calling. Well, actually, that is your gifting, and that is your calling. If you're a child of God, then you have been uniquely and specifically gifted and called to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That is true of every single believer. And so just to be clear, listen, if you are not actively making or attempting to make disciples of Christ in your life right now, then you are actively rejecting the call of Christ in your life right now. I'm sorry if that's offensive, by the way, but there's really no nice way to say it. We are either influencing those around us for the cause of Christ, or we are being influenced by those around us for the cause of this world. There really is no middle ground. There is no neutral zone between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. There is only a battle zone. And every morning when we wake up, we have to decide which side of that battle we're going to be, in, we're going to be on. Right? Passivity, by the way. Choosing not to commit either way is choosing the way of the world which is the very struggle uh, we find the Israelites in in our story today as we continue our sermon series working our way through the book of Judges. Last week we covered the first five verses of chapter 2, which establishes the pattern for the Israelites throughout the rest of the book, uh, the pattern of allowing themselves to fall under the influence of the pagan culture around them and then being disciplined by God and then repenting and coming back to God only to repeat that pattern again. And, and then the remainder of chapter 2 really just sets up the story for the rest of the book by uh, first reiterating the death of Joshua, which we've already covered, and then by explaining that the Lord raised up judges throughout this uh, period in Israel's history to save them from their enemies. But again, there was this cycle where after a period of peace, the Israelites would once again allow themselves to be so influenced by the Canaanite culture around them that they ultimately turned away from God over and over again, suffering because of their disobedience until the Lord would raise up another judge from among them who would save them and bring them back to a period of peace only to start the cycle over again. It was a cycle that ultimately lasted well over 300 years. And so that's where we're going to pick the story back up this morning at Judges chapter 3 at the beginning of that cycle. And we'll begin uh, by reading together the first six verses and hopefully see what we can glean about the influence that God created us, His people, to have in this world. Let's read it together. Judges chapter 3. Verses 1 through 6. 
Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, in all Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. So it's a clear picture of God's people choosing to allow the culture around them to influence every aspect of their lives rather than being an influence for change to the culture around him. And verse 1 explains that this current generation is the generation after the one who initially conquered Canaan. So the Israelites who are now living in the promised land had never actually experienced a war. And so God uses the disobedience of the previous generation who failed to completely drive out the inhabitants of Canaan. He uses the product of the previous generation's disobedience to teach some very hard lessons to the current generation, namely the importance of influence and how profoundly powerful it is when God's people understand that we were created not for passivity, not for compromise, not to quietly blend in with the culture around us so that everyone will hopefully approve of us or like us. No, God was about to teach his people some very difficult lessons so that we would forever understand that we were created to be agents of change in this world. People who actually influence the culture around us by living radically different lives than the ones the world expects us to live. So verse 2 says that it was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. We're going to come back to that uh, startling verse in just a moment. But first, just to paint the picture of exactly what the Israelites were up against. Verse 3 describes the nations that Israel would ultimately have to confront if they were going to fulfill their purpose as God's agent of change in this world. First, you have the, uh, the five lords of the Philistines. Okay, The Philistines were not native to Canaan. They're described in the ancient Hebrew as Pelishti. They were sea people who immigrated from Crete to the western seacoast of Canaan from the 12th to 11th centuries BC, by the way, leaving a trail of ruins in their, in their wake. Uh, in fact, they originally tried to settle in Egypt, but Ramses III defeated them in about 1190 BC, and so the Egyptians ruled over them for a time in a southwest Canaan until the mid-12th century BC when they finally drive, uh, drive the Egyptians out, and then they formed a federation of five major city-states called the Philistine Pentopolis, which uh, consisted of Ashdod, uh, Ashkelon, Ekron, Gath, and Gaza. Okay, so the point being, these were people of war, 
Right? And, and to make matters worse for the Israelites, the Philistines had a monopoly on iron forging in all of Canaan. Uh, as described in 1 Samuel 13, we have a surplus of archaeological evidence of Philistine military superiority, not only in the coastland of Canaan, but in the interior cities as well. We've, we've unearthed Egyptian wall carvings and Palestinian pottery collections that attest to a very strong ethnic distinctiveness which separated them from all of the other inhabitants of Canaan as a people of war and a people of cultural influence. And then in addition to the Philistines, you had all the Canaanites, which is a catch-all phrase to describe all of the non-Jewish residents of Palestine who were scattered throughout Canaan. We already saw in chapter 1 the wholesale moral and religious depravity of Canaanite culture who along with every type of sexual deviation that you do not want to imagine they killed and cannibalized their own children and drank their blood. Right Then you had the Sidonians who were the remnant of the original Canaanite pagan population and then finally the Hivites who were a non-Semitic people closely related um, to Gibeon who were ultimately conscript, uh, conscripted by Solomon to build the temple. And, and so if you look at the locations of all of these people groups on the map, you find the Philistines in the southwest, the Sidonians in the northwest, the Hivites in the northeast, and the bulk of the rest of the Canaanites in the southeast. The Israelites, who were supposed to be set apart by God in this promised land, were living in Canaan with zero military battle experience at this point and utterly surrounded by distinctively pagan cultures, many of whom were expertly schooled, highly equipped, and experienced in the art of war. And by the way, they hated the Israelites. And yet the disposition of this new generation of Israelites toward their neighbors was one of passivity. They were completely unresistant to the influence of the pagan cultures around them to the point they had actually adopted those cultures as their own, unwilling to fight the battles they were called by God to fight. And so God's response was to protect the Israelites from any kind of discomfort or hardship or oppression or pain so that they would never have to face any uncomfortable battles in their lifetime. No, that's not actually true. That's not it at all. God's response to the Israelites' lack of willingness or resolve to influence anyone and lack of backbone to fight any battles, his response was to absolutely surround and overwhelm them with people and cultures who were committed to their demise. Why? So that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. Look, from God's people then to God's people today, we were never intended to go through life without having to face any discomfort or hardship or difficult confrontation. In fact, God created you to fight great battles. And do you know how God teaches us to fight? By sending us into situations where we have no choice but to fight or be defeated. 
Okay? God teaches us to fight battles in our lives by sending us into battles in our lives. Of course, we're not called today to take up swords and wipe out our enemies the way the Israelites were called to do in Canaan. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish Every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Make no mistake about it. We were not created to be a passive people. No, we were created to fight great battles in this life. To stand up against every argument and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God in our culture. So that we would have great influence in the lives of men and women who are around us every single day. Otherwise, if we choose to be passive, if we choose not to fight for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we become captive to philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Okay, listen. God created you to fight great battles in this life, which means you have a choice. A choice to fight those battles or to lay down and be defeated. Now why do you think some elements of the American church today have been wholly accepted, embraced into mainstream American culture? Well, it's not because our culture is sold out to living for Jesus Christ. No, it's because there's a significant portion of the American church today that has sold itself out to the pressures of popular culture. Right? We've chosen to be passive. We've chosen not to fight for the sake of the gospel because we're more concerned about making people like us than we are about making disciples. Amen. But listen, if we as the church are not actively making or attempting to make disciples of Christ in our lives right now, then we are actively rejecting the call of Christ in our lives right now. And yet we will never effectively make disciples by trying to appease the culture around us. We will never make disciples by trying to make sure that everybody likes us. And we will surely never be able to make disciples by avoiding every battle that is before us. No, because all that you end up with is a church that is safe. Which is just a nice way of saying ineffective, feeble, feckless, fearful. A church without a single shred of influence in our culture. We were created by God to be agents of change in our culture. And the way to influence others for the sake of Christ in this country is not going with the flow it is not by being passive. It is not by keeping a low profile, spiritually speaking. No, the way that you influence others for the sake of the gospel of Christ is by living out the gospel of Christ in front of them and then engaging in those spiritual battles when they come. 
It's being willing to speak the truth in love in a culture that does not want to hear it. It is being willing to keep on giving even when it seems you have nothing left to give. It is being willing to pray unceasingly for the will of God even when it doesn't look like anything is happening. It's being willing to love those who do not love you back, to help those who have not earned it, to forgive those who have not asked for it, to share the gospel with those who do not want it and to stand up to those who will try and stop it. You influence others by consistently living a life so radically sold out to Jesus Christ that it cannot be ignored or contained. You were created to be an agent of change in this world and our enemy will fight you every single step of the way. He will do all that he can to stop you. Listen, don't run from the fight. You don't have to because God created you to fight great battles. Unfortunately, this generation of Israelites wasn't quite ready to do that. They weren't yet willing to commit all of their fidelity to God because they thought they could have the best of both worlds, just like so many Christians do today. The Israelites thought they could receive all the benefits of being God's covenant people without having to honor that very covenant, which resulted in some very difficult uh, battles for God's people. Let's read about it. Verses 7 through 14. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. The people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, that would be Jericho. And the people of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. So the Israelites forget the Lord their God. If you read that passage in the ancient Hebrew, it also means to ignore or to disregard. So they, they claim to belong to the God of the Hebrews while simultaneously serving the gods of the Canaanites. We have uh, ancient Ugaritic texts recently discovered in modern-day Syria that describe Asheroth as a prominent fertility goddess in Canaanite mythology. She was said to be the wife of the high god El and mother of 70 other gods. And although she was represented in their culture by nothing more than a wooden pole, this Canaanite fertility cult was powerfully seductive to the Israelites as attested to in many Hebrew inscriptions that we have dating all the way back to the period of the monarchy that speak about Asheroth. So rather than influencing the culture around them once again, the Israelites allow themselves to be influenced by the culture around them. And the results are disastrous. They're taken captive 
they're oppressed to the point they have no way to exert any influence in the culture at all anymore. They no longer have a voice to speak into anyone's life. That is until they pray. When they finally cry out to God in humility, there's a much debate, by the way, among scholars as to whether or not they were actually repentant. But in any case, God acts on their behalf. In his great love and mercy for his people, he responds. He delivers them by raising up a judge to save them and to reestablish them and their place once again in this world. And so all is well again. That is until they are made comfortable again. Once they're safe, once they're secure, once they're prosperous, they stray from God all over again and the cycle is repeated, which seems utterly ridiculous when you simply sit down and read through it in one sitting until you consider that, first of all, these events were taking place across generations of time. And secondly, how many of us are guilty of the very same kinds of cycles in our own lifetimes. We stray from God when we become more impressed with our culture than we are with Him. And so we begin to pursue created things more than we pursue the Creator until something goes wrong and the life we thought we had by the tail all of a sudden doesn't make sense anymore. And then we find ourselves crying out to God, looking for answers. The truth is, Sometimes the battles that we fight in this life are by our own making. And yet even at that, God is merciful and faithful to see us through it, especially when we cry out to Him in humble repentance. So don't avoid the battles when they come, whether by His design or by yours. If, if staying on track with God or getting back on track with God means you have to fight a battle, don't run from it. Because you were created to fight great battles. Let's continue in the story now as God raises up another judge on behalf of his people. Verses 15 through 25. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it onto his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat and Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited until they were embarrassed, but when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. 
So verse 12 says that the Lord strengthened the king of Moab against Israel. It's the same verb, uh, by the way, that's used in Ezekiel 30, 24, where the Lord strengthens the king of Babylon against Egypt. And so just as a side note, and then we'll get back to the story. Listen, it should bring us tremendous comfort today knowing that in these days of nuclear powers and rogue nations being led by fascist, godless, and seemingly unstable, unreasonable leaders, that our God still controls and orders the destinies of nations. He still guides and directs and even overrules the decisions made by world leaders as he sees fit. God is sovereign God is in control. And so he strengthens Eglon, the king of Moab. Uh, the Moabites, by the way, were actually relatives of the Israelites. They were descendants uh, of Abraham's nephew Lot. And their kingdom was a mountainous tract of land situated on the eastern shore of the Dead Sea. And along with the biblical accounts of Moab, we have uh, a wealth of archaeological evidence in ancient writings, most notably the Mesha Stele, uh, which is an inscribed stone. It's often called the Moabite stone from 840 BC, which actually describes the Moabite victory over Israel. And so in their misery and humility, the Israelites cry out to God once again, which of course is the theme throughout the book of Judges. And in response, God raises up another judge, a man named Ehud. And I'm telling you, this guy is the stuff that legends were made of. Unbelievable courage, nerves of steel, total commitment to his cause and an ironclad resolve to see his purpose through all the way to the end. And so he makes a small concealable sword for himself and straps it to his right thigh, which is a very significant detail because Ehud was a Benjamite. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. And the reason that matters is because the name Benjamin in the Hebrew literally means son of the right hand, which is to say right hand. Okay, the Benjamites were highly skilled right-handed warriors, or so thought the Moabites. But if you dig a little deeper, you find that the Benjamites were actually trained to be ambidextrous fighters, which is to say they were equally skilled with weapons in both hands. Judges 2016 describes 700 Benjamite warriors who could sling a stone at a hair and not miss with their left hand. They're actually described there as being left-handed just as Ehud is here. But again, the Benjamites were actually known among the Israelites as being able to fight with both hands. In 1 Chronicles 12.2, they're described as bowmen and could shoot arrows and sling stones with either the right or the left hand. They were Benjaminites. And so you have Ehud, who's a Benjaminite, a man who by name of his tribe should be right-handed, but is actually ambidextrous. And again, here's why it matters in the story. Because if a right-handed warrior wanted to conceal a small blade on his thigh, first of all, he would probably strap that to the inside, if small enough, of his left thigh. Um, I was a police officer 25 years ago. And they taught us then the correct way to conceal a backup gun, if you're a right-handed officer, is to strap the gun on the inside of your left ankle. 
because first of all, it's more concealable on the inside of the leg. And secondly, it's far easier to draw if the weapon is opposite your strong hand. So a right-handed person who wants to conceal a weapon, if they know what they're doing, will strap that weapon on the inside of the left leg. And even if it was on the outside of the leg, uh, for a right-handed person, that would be on the opposite side to draw a sword. And of course, the Moabite guards knew that. So any who, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, who everybody knew were right-handed warriors, I mean, that's what their name means, right? When he comes to pay tribute to King Eglon, the guards would have been far less likely to search him for weapons on his right leg, especially the inside of the right leg, which is where the sword was concealed, because unknown to the Moabites, the Benjaminites could kill you just as easily with either hand. So after presenting the tribute, a required payment to the king, Ehud sends those who are with him on their way, and he turns back to see the king once again. And this time he tells the king he has a secret message for him from God. And of course, if he was going to attack the king, it would have been far more uh, logical to do it while he had his help there. So the fact that Ehud sent his fellow Benjaminites away probably further sets the king at ease, and so the king empties the room to hear this secret message from God, which comes in the form of a double-edged sword buried into his abdomen. And just like that, this king, who God, who at one time strengthened against the Israelites, was now reduced to a heap of fat and dung. And so Ehud locks the doors to the chamber and he leaves. And when the guards and servants come back, the fact that the doors to the chamber are locked and also the fact that they could most surely smell the dung, they assume the king is in there relieving himself. So they wait a long time before checking on him, long enough, in fact, for Ehud to escape. Now, there are so many things that could have gone wrong with this plan. Right? The guards could have found the sword hidden on Ehud and he would have been killed. The king could have taken offense to Ehud's presumption, a slave's presumption in delivering a message from God to the king and Ehud could have been killed. The king could have kept his guards in the room with him and after the attempt to kill the king, Ehud would have been attacked by multiple guards and killed. The servants could have discovered Eglon's uh, dead body much sooner and Ehud would have been tracked down and killed. We can go on and on and on, right, with the possibilities here. The point is, Ehud was not afraid of taking a massive risk for the sake of God's people. He certainly understood what he was doing, and yet he was willing to take that risk because he also knew that he'd been created for something bigger than himself. And if he was going to live up to that great calling on his life, it would mean taking great risks. Nothing has changed for God's people today. God created you to take great risks. In fact, God has never called anyone to play it safe. No one in the Bible was ever called to play it safe. So why do we think we are? This may come as a surprise to some of you, but you're not called to play it safe. You are not. In fact, God created you to take great risks in your life in order that you would be able to greatly influence others, to influence them, to change the way they're living their lives and who they're living them for.
Right? Think about it. How many books are written about people who played it safe? Who's inspired by a story about someone who always played it safe? Who never took a risk? Who has ever had their life actually changed radically by playing it safe? You see, zero risk means zero change. Which is exactly how a lot of people live their entire lives. But that is not God's design for us. That is not his plan for your life to keep everything as safe and predictable as possible. No, he expects us. In fact, he demands that we risk it all for the sake of following him. And anything short of that was unacceptable and in fact unthinkable to Jesus. Read Luke 9 from verse 57 on. Read Luke 14 from verse 25 on. Read Matthew 19 from verse 16 on. Read about what Jesus said to those who were not willing to risk everything to follow him. He said, don't bother. Don't waste your time. Because if I'm not worth risking everything for, then I'm not worth risking anything for. Well, that sounds kind of dangerous, doesn't it? Yeah, that's why Bible scholar David Gusick says the symbol of Christianity is a cross, not a feather bed. Because in the end, choosing to follow Jesus Christ will not only be uncomfortable at times, but it will cost you everything that you have. That's why it's called risk. You were created to take great risks. That's going to mean investing in some things in your life. Investing in some relationships that maybe you wouldn't normally invest in. It's going to mean investing in some kind of ministry that times will tax you to your core. At times you will have to invest in projects, in some commitments, in some new direction for your life without knowing how it's going to turn out. And by the way, it may not turn out the way you wanted it to. To or thought it would. That's why it's called risk. But look, you can have great risk without great success. But you cannot have great success without great risk. The truth is, if you open yourself up to the possibilities of risking some things in your life for the sake of God's calling in your life, I guarantee you, you will find that you're going to have to change some things in your life in order to even start moving in that direction. But that's the only way to live the life God created you for. Muhammad Ali said it this way, he who is not courageous enough to take risks will accomplish nothing in life. All right, look, you're going to have to take some risks to pursue God's call on your life. There are no shortcuts or exceptions to that rule. But listen, if you're going to make a difference in this world for the cause of Christ, if you're going to be the agent of change that he created you to be, then you're going to have to take some risks. The good news is, you were created to do just that. And God not only expects that of you, he demands it. If you're going to have any influence in this world as you live out your calling. Ehud certainly understood that. He knew that. And he risked it all to fulfill the call of God on his life. And the result was nothing short of breathtaking. 
Let's finish the story for today. Verses 26 to 30. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill of the country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. So Ehud escapes. He sounds the shofar. It's a ram's horn in the hills of Ephraim to muster the troops of Israel. And he says to them, follow after me, boys, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. Keep in mind, all the Israelites know at this point, all that they know at this point, is that one of their own has blown the shofar and is now telling them it's time to take back the land that God has given them. And they probably know at this point that he just killed the king. Now there's no record of them convening a council to discuss it before they move. They don't stop to drop battle plans. They don't take a few days to question Ehud and to create a strategy. No, based solely on the word of one man, they gather their forces, attack the enemy without experience, and kill 10,000 Moabites. Not a man escaped. Then they take back what God had given them. Now you tell me, do you think Ehud had some influence with the people of Israel? He most certainly did, but why? Well, it wasn't because he blew a horn and said, it's time. No, Ehud had tremendous influence with the people of Israel in that moment because of what he'd just done. He just risked his own life to take out the enemy king. Ehud had influence because of the example that he'd just become for the Israelites. And listen, likewise, God created you to be a great example for others. How you live your life out in front of others, what you're willing to give, what you're willing to risk, the, the example that you set for other people creates influence in your life that you were meant to wield as an agent of change in this world. Think about it. What was the difference between these two nations from the day before Ehud killed the king to the day of the assassination? What was the difference what changed in that 24-hour period of time? One dead man. That was the only real difference. The army of the Moabites that overtook the Israelites to begin with was the same. The ability of the Moabites to oppress the Israelites was the same. The strength and the culture of the Moabites was the same. The proximity of the Moabites to the Israelites was the same. What changed? One man has been killed. That's it. And yet in that one act, Ehud exercised such tremendous influence over the rest of Israel that it resulted in a profound change of destiny. 
for two generations of Israelites for 80 years, the longest period of peace for the Israelites throughout the entire time of the judges, all because one man answered the call of God. One man decided to be an example to the others. One man chose to be the agent of change that God created him to be, and the ripple effect of that influence changed the lives of two generations of an entire nation of God's people. Don't you tell me you can't make a difference in this world. You can, and in fact, God created you to. It comes down to influence. But you cannot expect to influence others. You cannot expect others to change if you're not willing to change yourself. Having influence means setting an example for others to follow. So ask yourself, what example am I setting for those around me right now in my life? What does my life, the way I'm living it, what is it saying to the people who know me, the people who see me every day, my family, my friends, the people I work with, the people I go to church with, my neighbors, my community? What example am I living out in front of others? Because listen, you cannot expect to change others if you're not willing to change yourself. You can't expect to have influence with others if you're not setting an example worth following. And to be clear, every single one of us is called by God to be an agent of change in this world. Jesus commanded each one of us to make disciples, which means if you're not actively making or attempting to make disciples of Christ in your life right now, then you're actively rejecting the call of Christ in your life right now. And if that is the case for you, if you're not making disciples in your life today, then ask yourself, what example am I setting for others? What influence can I expect to have, right? Listen, I know it's not easy. I know it's risky. At times, you're going to have to fight your way through it. Jesus promised us that following him would cost us everything. But it's okay. Because God uniquely created you for this moment. He created you for this hour to be an agent of change for this generation. You see, when you have the Spirit of God living inside of you, combined with the gifts and the talents that He's woven into your DNA, then you have everything that you need to change the world around you. So all that is left, all that is left is for you to choose. To choose to be exactly who he created you to be. Let's pray.